Hello and welcome back to Bad Impressions, the podcast where we talk about digital marketing in a light and humorous way. I'm David Shola and I'm joined, like always, or until we are forcibly removed from the internet, by my co-hosts Lee Elliott and Ryan Farley. We have a great second episode planned for you this week, thanks in a large part to the miracle of editing. And without further ado, Ryan, do you want to introduce to everyone who will be joining us this week? Okay, today we have a very special guest, everyone's favorite Tumblr employee, Zach Doyle. Hey, Randy. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. I miss you every day. I wish the feeling were mutual. So what do you do now, Zach? Uh, I'm currently unemployed. I had a short stint at a company called Quibi, where I was part of the growth marketing team. Unfortunately, several factors led to its demise and my current unemployment. But, you know, things are looking good. Things are going forward. And previous to Quibi, I uh, spent some time at a couple agencies, including VaynerMedia, where I met you guys, as well as what Randy alluded to, Tumblr and Yahoo. Great. Thanks, Zach, for agreeing to come onto the show. But before we get into the interview-esque portion of the show, I want to try out a new segment here where we QA ourselves, if you will, with the pun massively and purposefully uh, intended. Lee, you made a comment last week that Coca-Cola was founded in Kansas. A quick Google search revealed that that is not true. Coca-Cola was founded in Columbus, Georgia, which is pretty far away from Kansas the last time I looked at a map. So it's safe to say that Coca-Cola has always been and forever will be a Georgia peach. Okay, fine. I admit it. We need to correct the error of me being on this podcast. If I'm going to dangerously wield such violent misinformation. For the record, I wish it was founded in Kansas instead of Columbus. That's what I think of Columbus, Georgia. Hopefully we don't have a a big enclave of uh, listenership in, in Columbus. If I could block Columbus's IP from hearing us, I would. Put it on record. Knocking out the third largest media market in Georgia. That's a grow podcast. Just restricting viewership and listenership, you know, one, one market at a time. The hundred downloads has gone to my head. With that, I think it's time to move into the brief where we talk about news and current events. So one of the things that uh, kind of came across like multiple circles of, of mine was the introduction of Twitter and its fleets. I just wanted to get everyone's here's opinion on what do we think about this disappearing messaging and how Snapchat pioneered it, everyone stole it, and now it's almost pretty much like ubiquitous. What do we think about that or does anyone have any like strong opinions or hot takes? I mean, the first thing that comes to my mind is that it almost feels a little bit predatory because the product feature itself isn't endemic to any of the platforms really besides Snapchat, which was based on the idea of disappearing features or pictures or messages, whereas there's no reason for anything on Twitter to disappear. And they're simply copying what's working elsewhere and trying to get a taste of whatever that user base is who is interested in disappearing messages. So It's kind of strange, but I get it. It just seems like a cheap trick. Like the the product managers at Twitter can't be super thrilled with themselves to be like, we copied Snapchat 10 years later. What's fascinating is it came out that the main impetus behind them doing this is they have an activist investor called Elliott Capital. No relation. I would never have this idea, nor would I ever own a capital group, but it came from an activist investor. And basically they said that Twitter had not been innovative enough and they needed to push more innovation. And they were very happy with this. And a lot of people were saying it's absolutely hysterical 
that they said Twitter needed to innovate more by being like the sixth platform to copy a feature. I was about to say, how is innovation something to quote Zach, copying it 10 years later? I mean, that's the opposite of innovation to me. Zach, I think started like a really good thought for me is in terms of like when you're saying like they're, they're like just the way you phrased it in terms of like they're copying what works. And it's like, uh, what do we think they define as like what is working with a feature like that, that it gets traction and, and buzz or like what is the value prop for any of these platforms where it's not endemic to, you know, now offer a product feature that is these like disappearing messages or content? Yeah, to me, it really has to be a user base whose primary activity that takes place on the service is that feature. So they got some sort of positive signaling from maybe it's just Elliott Management or Capital who pushed that agenda and said like, hey, there's a percentage of users at Snapchat, at whoever else, specifically use that platform that service every day because of that feature you should consider it just to get a slice of that user base which like sure but it again it's like kind of a cheap trick it's playing to that millennial fear of commitment user base i mean i think about like people who on instagram to use the original snapchat copycat all the people who wouldn't necessarily want to post a photo and have so much more deliberation you can post it on your story and then it'll go away. So to me, it speaks to a younger demographic who don't want to post something that's going to last on their profile. The Elliott Capital piece is really interesting to me because, and this is all public knowledge, so I have no problem speaking about it, but Quibi was in an active lawsuit with this company called Echo over Quibi's patented technology called Turnstile, which is like, it's basically like the idea that a show is filmed two different ways based on landscape or portrait mode. And this company claimed that Quibi had stolen that technology from them. And guess who represented them? Drumroll, Elliott Capital. And so they had been involved with a whole bunch of legal stuff with Quibi regarding that. So it's really interesting to me that out of all the hedge funds or whatever they are of the world, the people who are suing other people, com companies, whatever, for copying IP or copying features are encouraging other members of their portfolio to do exactly the same in some shape or manner. Really this fascinating is, game. This is insane. This might be kind of a story. Are, are Elliott Capital just specialists in knowing all these platforms IP and then forming an opinion of what you can and can't copy? And then either encouraging copying or pushing litigation? I mean, honestly, one it's of like the things- It's like patent trolling as a firm. It really is. And one of the things they did that bothered us, at least, and this is alleged because, it, I mean, it's paid search. So the, someone was bidding on Quibi's brand terms that were pushing that story, the legal story of like LA Times, New York Times, whatever was published by whoever. And someone was paying money to serve ads that said, Quibi is sued again, read about it here. And our thought was that, that it was Elliott Capital who was kind of like pushing the narrative along when people are looking for information about Quibi. So yeah, it seems like they have a nice little marketing team of patent trolls. I'm not but convinced it's not you, Lee. I was about to say, I hate what they do for society, <laughs> but it sounds kind of fun. And I feel like they'd have to hire me and I could trick them into thinking I've always been a partner. That's, that's exactly. fascinating. Is this Echo, like E-K-O? Yep, they're based in Brooklyn. Yeah, we worked on, I worked on them at Vayner for a period of time. That Echo? Yeah, the Toy Lab thing. 
Oh my God, this is an insane <laughs> convergence. <laughs> well, but that's what's interesting to me because I don't, none of that stuff, at least when I worked on them, was anything we were working with. It was all about kind of a choose your own adventure. And it was at the same time, and someone who's more up with things on Netflix will be able to tell me this, but there was a show at, on Netflix at the same time that was a choose your own adventure type thing. And that was how they were pitching their tech at the time. So that's interesting that then they made that pivot to the horizontal to vertical. And, and that was the modern remake of War Games, right? Right. I think so. And then the Toy Lab was a thing for Walmart. Mm-hmm. You know? Oh man, that so that company that we worked on like three years ago got this shadowy Elliot Capital Professional Patent Troll Mercenary Group to sue Quibi while they were telling Twitter to copy stories. Guys, these, this is like Elliot Capital or like the Illuminati of patent trolls or something. It's a really interesting development. I mean, I, I wasn't privy to them influencing the fleets feature, but wow, what a um, fortuitous roll of the dice. I also, I am not an, I am not an Evan Spiegel liker. I, I'm not a Snapchat man. This idiot puts on a black turtleneck because he thinks he's Steve Jobs, you know, like, which he, he does that. Okay, but one stories two i once met with the augmented reality team at a large platform who when i asked them to describe what they were doing literally said okay you know what snapchat's doing just that we're just fast following and i was like oh is there a reason you picked that strategy and they were like they whole cloth invented the first good version of the whole thing like there's no point in doing anything else so as much as I've in my life not exactly stand Evan Spiegel or Snapchat, I, I don't know. The most widely copied modern digital marketing platform feature. And again, according to an entire team at a rival platform, the first and only ever good version of augmented reality that everyone else will only ever chase. The only other thing I'll say about the stories feature is how much of it do you think like Snapchat was very much a younger demographic. So moving it onto Instagram and then Facebook and WhatsApp and Messenger and now Twitter, how much of that is expanding the user base of people who haven't played around with this feature before? I think that's what's interesting to me is these, like, I don't know if there's something there, but that's what I was just thinking. I think it's one of two things. I think it's exactly they're trying to age down. Or two, there's something in the data that all of these platforms are keeping really close to the chest in terms of increasing time on, on platform. Like those are the only two things that remotely appear to be a value prop for the platforms to, you know, subject themselves to our ridicule about copying other platforms over and over again. Not that, you know, every platform should be afraid of our hot takes, but that that's the only thing that I can, I can imagine is like, they're, they're just trying to keep people on platform longer, engaging more. And I'm sure there's data that, that supports that, which then supports the, you know, follow the money kind of thing in terms of, yeah, it's an opportunity for a different ad format. I mean, hell, LinkedIn has stories now. That's the most hilarious thing on earth. And, you know, whenever I get on LinkedIn, I only see two people using stories of everyone that I follow. It might not be the same two, but it's only about two stories. And so, they so could, it's Gary Vaynerchuk and an account called, that's absolutely right. Please meet with me, Gary Vaynerchuk. <laughs> right you now, the only one I'm seeing is from VaynerMedia London. Oh, sorry. Oh, Gov Gary Vaynerchuk. Well, uh... <laughs> is it time uh... for a sponsor live read yet? <laughs>
but yeah, I, I think getting back to the point that it goes back to them being able to like push their algorithmic ad insertions and those kind of things, getting people to spend more time, view more content, more ad interstitials. I mean, it's just like you just follow it. They make money by the more ads that they can serve. So that could be the only reason, but it just doesn't seem like it fits within the platform. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, I have to think that is kind of a bullshit product feature that it was pushed like with no other reason than for competitive competition like especially with linkedin dropping it so soon the pressure that comes from like a board member or an investor or someone like that making an offhand comment like you should be more innovative you should do xyz going to like people who think rationally like you just did through why should we add this feature to a product to me if there's no way it would pass the taste test of like the product managers at, at twitter so to me they probably looked at it and they were like we could just do this it's stupid but like it'll make the old people or uh, like more antiquated thinkers or maybe looser lipped thinkers of Elliot management or whoever, maybe it'll satiate their need for innovation in a very simple way that it is like on surface level competitive. What if Elliot management counseled Twitter to add it and then sued Twitter on behalf of Snapchat for adding it? Maybe that's the next level play. And maybe it is. Or are they hoping that Twitter adds it and then some other platform like Parler adds it and then they get to go after Parler, you know, in terms of like, uh, like they just, they got in way too late in the, um, in the, the chain uh, of this product being added. Uh, and now there's going to go after the next person that does it. What would Parler stories be called? Slurs by Parler. Didn't. <laughs> Putting that aside. I think at this point, we'll get into the real meat of the podcast. The reason we've asked Dr. Zach Doyle here today, which is to discuss his recent experience in an environment where, you know, he was, was part of a group that was operating in a, a framework or a structure that I think a lot of us see as, as much closer to the optimal way to run any sort of marketing communications team. And, you know, what it was like to kind of uh, be, be loosened and unchained in the undiscovered country. And what was this great about is advertised? What was, what was unexpected? Yeah, no, I think that that is a pretty good intro as far as like understanding the experience and, and kind of like how things were built. And anybody who's worked in a media buying or marketing communications, performance marketing, some sort of similar role or responsibility or team has probably had the thought of if you had got like the biggest piggy bank of money and the best sort of leadership in the market that you could think of or a very highly touted set of people to, to kind of like start things with a, a unique idea. How would you build things and how would you structure a team? And, and you know, there's a lot of ways to go and you can look at all the more recent successful and I'm using air quotes startups or tech companies like how did they start what would you do as far as an optimal uh, composition and what Quibi chose to do was hire people who were proven as growth leaders and then hire people who also were some sort of either successful growth marketers to varying degrees or 
had experienced that fit different functions within a growth organization. And I'm using growth as a proxy for a word of performance marketing, more or less. I think traditionally growth fits more into kind of like the product side of things. In this context, I'm using it as strictly as kind of a crossover between performance marketing and some experimentation slash product morphing type of thing. But what they did is they hired leaders from established companies who had proven their kind of salt and said, hey, go and do whatever you want as far as hiring people, agencies, however you want to approach this and do it. And what they did is they hired a flat organization of people who either had significant independent or individual contribution at similar tech or app-based companies. And then they hired people who were responsible for thought leadership, general managerial leadership, or had hands-on keyboard experience. So personally, the last three years, I had been in like kind of strange leadership roles at VaynerMedia and at Essence, where at Essence, I was very much hands-off, very, uh, I would say a meeting and an email type of person. I was never in platform. I wasn't buying ads, doing any optimization. And at Vayner, it had gotten to the point where it was similar to that. Although I was still some sometimes in platform, I had hands-on keyboard experience. I had kind of like the specialization within the Google stack. And that's exactly what Quibi was looking for. Is like they wanted someone who could sit down, upload ads, manage a budget on a daily basis. But they also wanted someone who could design the strategy from foundation upwards and communicate that at all different levels, be it to product team, to engineering team, to leadership. And they did that for each platform. They did that for different functions, be it messaging, social. And then there's a whole other slew of folks who like really made it happen, which is like the production team. But yeah, it was, it's, it was fascinating to see what a group of five or six people who have a really similar ideologic standpoint and marketing and, and digital marketing specifically, how they would approach things and how they would build something from the ground up that seemingly is a, is a good idea on paper. I think in digital marketing, we've seen recently some of the delivery of the promise of the platforms doing more for themselves and also delivering more immediate insights. Six years ago, the notion that you actually could heavily automate, let's say Google ads, and that you actually could very quickly pull real insights out of Google Analytics, maybe not so much. I think today you can more so than then. And I honestly think, and it, it, it pains me to say this, my inclinations towards society being what they are, I don't think there is as much need for certain boiler room work in digital marketing as there was five years ago. I, I think that was something that was promised very early and didn't take shape quickly as people kind of tried to get into these escalating wars of complexity. I think it's really started to pay off and rather than the platforms being caught flat-footed in terms of people's expectations for automation and real like quick information at the senior stakeholder grade being available, I have found that now some organizations are flat-footed in terms of having a bunch of people who don't have as much to do as they used to. I don't know if that's off, if you saw any of that, you know, with the actual opportunity to operate sort of on a smaller team with more space or, or, if, or if you saw anything that kind of refutes that. Yeah, no, I, I think what it requires is a truly like 
and this is cheesy because I think it's an interview line in digital marketing, but it's like it, it requires an egoless type of environment from all parties in that you have to be able to say, I'm going to roll up my sleeves and help you upload ads on Facebook tonight because that need, that's what needs to be done and say like, I don't care that I have however many years of experience. I think X, Y, Z of myself. It's like, this is what needs to be done. It's mission critical. And everybody is on the same page about that. There's a lot of like time lending that needs to go into that. But it's something I've said for a while is like, most of what we're doing is at the point now where you don't need to be uh, incredibly specialized to do something effectively, especially within digital marketing specifically. And if you have the right people who understand that and understand that really that like where the real like magic happens is outside of the platforms. It's like understanding how to test something. It's understanding like what sort of variables are going to actually make changes to the business and not just to like a digital marketing campaign. It's funny because now when I look at things or I hear things from friends or old coworkers about very specific details about the certain campaigns or like the perfect example, I saw a screenshot from someone that was like, Hey, I think your, your media plan is off by 28 cents. Please don't ever send me that ever. It's just stupid to spend for anybody, especially if you consider yourself a professional of any level to spend any amount of time on that, in my opinion. And like, I think most senior leadership would agree with that, that no one who could be doing meaningful work, should be like trying to negotiate uh, under a dollar discrepancy and something. So yeah, I think the idea of being busy versus having something to do, or I guess a better way to say it is like being busy versus feeling important or feeling recognized for the work that you're doing is a huge distinction that really was like, I think put by the wayside it makes for, for work to actually get done and for meaningful changes to be done through digital marketing. I think one of the things that's going to be like kind of interesting as the industry kind of evolves, as you start thinking about this kind of conversation about needing to be a generalist, not necessarily needing to have a ton of like hands-on, like granular platform experience and, and becoming more kind of more leveled up, allowing the platform to do its, you know, auto optimization and like the, the, you know, the big dreaded algorithm that's coming for all of our jobs is something that will need to be addressed maybe in the upcoming years when those of us who started in the industry, when like the looming algorithm was coming and really was still kind of far away, uh, we got to build our chops on how these platforms and systems like work and like what levers you do need to pull. And so when the algorithm does like freak out and do something absolutely like wrong, like we still have the ability and, and marketers now, you know, like entry level people can still come in to the situation and like write the ship. But I think what's going to be issue is as those there's less and less things to do uh, as we give more and more over to the platform, what does the managerial or the the supervisory level, can they step in in the future to take the reins back from the platform if it's driving the carriage off the cliff? You know, I think that's what's going to be really interesting as we just relinquish a lot of the system, or it could be the blame at the end of the day to like to the platform. But I think for a lot of clients, like that's just not going to cut it either. So I think there's going to be like the the rub in terms of maybe not a now issue, but a, a future issue is who's going to be able to actually like explain what the platform's doing, you know, as it's like auto optimizing, like what's the, 
the fundamental principles that the platform's doing, like the less that we actually have to do and train entry level people, like the less that they're going to have that experience to, to do that in the future. Maybe it's great for us and we'll always have jobs, you know, just being able to explain what, what the platform's doing, but maybe we don't want to do this the rest of our lives and we'd like to pass the torch to someone. I think that's incredibly accurate. And I have consistently noticed something in people who weren't as present in the era of sort of the balance between human and machine optimization getting to where it is. And this is a big me tuning people of, of my career links horn here, but I found this to be true. It's passed from science and enlightenment to a religion and folklore thing. Generally, when we are having trouble with some sort of automated system and something needs to be done, I find that people at 10 plus year tenure simultaneously both have more reverence and respect for what the machines can do that they cannot, but they're also less afraid to kind of go off the beaten path and give them a kick, you know, like just throw a wrench at it. People who have exclusively sort of come about in this era where they've been dominant both are sometimes like kind of skeptical and I find myself sometimes having to be like, I'm not trying to be mean to you, but no, I'm sorry. Your budgeting idea is not better. It's not, you're not going to do a better job. And yet those same people also, they're like, well, I don't think it's that great. And then we're like, look, can you get in there and like knock around and really fuck around with it a bit? They're like, the Google rep said we shouldn't do that. Randy, do you disagree? I'm coming through the lane at your generation here. Well, that's where I was kind of thinking. I feel like I have an interesting perspective because when I started, it was the tail end of doing things very, very manually. But I think that this kind of evolution into the, if you can figure, it's, it's almost like a, if you can figure it out, you can figure it all out. And people who are a little bit more willing to get their hands dirty and actually Google something if they don't understand and then work to figure something out, they'll get to the point where they are running ads smoothly, whereas people who need explicit instructions and all these things. So that's one of the things I was thinking. But I do think your comparison of people who don't want to trust an idea that the automation is going to work, but also don't seem to have a better idea. I've seen that a lot in like, there's not that many levers to pull anymore. If you make it automated and you follow the best practices, I kind of think this goes back to, as an example, Lee, your example from today with RSAs versus normal search ads. If you kind of go with the flow of what the new things are, like, and the things that are more automated and you have less control, it's hard to let go of the control, but it's performance speaks for itself. I don't know. And it's tough. You're, you're right. A lot of people have skepticism, but not another way. You know, it's like, you know, it, it, at least, uh, at least the Unabomber had a manifesto. Probably not the best example, but. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty close. Uh, it's funny. I went from um, one experience that was very much your traditional digital marketing strategic setup where it's like, let's define the audience with these third-party data lists. Let's use um, the, the endemic targeting options available in, in Google and Facebooks of the world and like make these campaigns that make sense for each one of our products. And then I switched gears to Quippy and it's like, let's not do that. Every, and pretty much everyone is our target and let's prove that whatever we do actually impacts the bottom line of the business, which kind of gets into the idea of incrementality, which I, I know you guys are all familiar with, but it, that's what it boils down to is that if your product is the right fit for everyone, then your targeting becomes even less 
less important. And I mean, I think the thing that's lost on a lot of people is that the algorithmic bidding, especially in the case of Google and Facebook, takes so much into account that your average 20 something year old media buyer um, could slave over for days and not even come close to beating as far as identifying a, the right person at the right time in the right place for conversion. So it, it's, it's just like, to me, the cards are just stacked against that sort of a mindset. And it's whether or not people in the shoes of leadership are willing to accept that and build their teams around it, or if they just want to keep the status quo and fill the shoes of what were there before them. I've got two points. I think one was um, the, the find the right person at the right time uh, at the right, you know, like put the right message kind of thing. I've become increasingly more cynical about that. I mean, it started when, when Lee and I worked together on, on Verizon on the acquisition campaigns. And I just was like, I kind of came to him as he was my manager and just kind of said, how many of these acquisitions are we acquiring of just, we're just happening to stumble and fall in front of someone who's going to convert anyways. They were already going to do that. And we just happened to intercept them along the way. And we plopped an ad on their browser and, well, what do you know? They converted, which kind of gets into this whole world of like incrementality. And I think my, my question for you and your experience with Quibi is like something that is so new uh, and in terms of like the, the growth stage that you all are in, like, how did y'all even base anything off of the incrementality of what media could provide when there's really not a solid like base of, of data to say like, if we don't do any advertising, our user base will be this versus if we do advertising, our expected incremental like lift would be why, you know, like what would that, how did that like go about in, in the walls of Quibi? Yeah. I mean, we were, I think really honest with ourselves that basically everything off the rip is going to be incremental. So measuring things with like rigorous incrementality measurement while we still did it, of course, it's going to come back at like 80% or 90% incremental because it's brand new. So our, our mindset was let's measure that for as long as we can and as early as we can so that we can see it, you know, drip down because ideally you'd like to see that your, your media is, has little incrementality as possible, which means you're organically driving demand or something else is driving demand for your business other than those ads. So I think that comes down to like, uh, having a good understanding of what a percentage incremental means for your business and then being realistic with yourself and with leadership, which I can't say enough about the leaders of my team who then did a really good job of communicating and educating leadership of like, hey, this, this is how it's going to look. And then here's what we expect um, over time. And one of the things that I, th I think the leadership did a really good job was, was letting us run with that. It's like, we did a good job of explaining it and educating, and they did a good job of understanding and, and kind of pushing things forward. I think a clean slate can be really powerful. I will note, one, uh, two things I, I have historically dealt with a lot, mostly at the most established organizations I've worked at. One, kind of going back to the religion and folklore. I am in the year of someone's Lord 2020, still shocked at how many people are out there basically selling, and I'll say search, paid search specifically, just to give an example, but this applies to all marketing, I think. Search, it's especially bad because it's an old digital discipline. There are so many people still selling what I call the goop of paid search. It's completely fake and it's not healthy, but it works really well with a human intuitive demand for narrative and a human intuitive demand 
to see the universe as something that works the way we think it should and that we can relate to is one thing. So I've, I've spent a ton of time in my career basically trying to burn down the temple of the long tail guy. Honestly, like in my America, there is, there is no place for Mr. SEO long tail. These people are damage doers and it is my hope they will one day pay. The other thing, shout out RIP David Graeber. In large established agency organizations, one of David Graeber's classic five types of bullshit job that makes a ton of sense is the flunky, which is just someone who's there to exist and like enhance someone's power and make them look good. What's really difficult about trying to run small, tight, high output per person teams is they can sometimes be seen to have less organizational cachet. Because when you show up to a meeting and it's just you and one other person because you're good at what you do and you're, you're trying to get something done, and then the team that flies seven deep walks in, that's who sets the tone for the meeting. The meeting doesn't start until the sixth and seventh project coordinators are there. And then also suddenly they're the audience. So I think what's great about a clean slate and, and not as good about a less clean slate, and I think this is particular to marketing, which look, it's, it's something that people who I think are proud of how good they are at quote managing optics, I'm gonna say they also are the world's biggest suckers for other people's optics. I think the flunky factor is alive and well and, and makes it difficult to aim for really small effective teams at some organizations because if you're actually trying to like have a good career and be powerful at tons of organizations it's career suicide to have a small team it's like the opposite of scoring points do you think that that mentality is surmountable or do you think anyone who wants to work in this environment needs to look for somewhere that it that it's already happening or or is it is open to it uh, I, I personally, I feel like the latter has to be true, that it has to start from the top. And I totally agree. It's like the person who's in charge of making the call of like, we are going to have a small team that is relied upon very strongly for their own actions needs to be the person who understands exactly what you just said, which is my small team is going to be exactly that. And it's not going to be a seven person in every meeting type of thing. It's going to be people who are trusted, who are true partners of and responsible for their, their actions and their duties. Because otherwise it like, it's way too easy to exactly like you said, have like the flunkies in there who just kind of like do what they do and kind of throw in the towel. I give a lot of credit to Quibi in the hiring process and, they did a lot of vetting of a lot of people and a lot of like very rigorous, I think, questioning and testing of the people who they hired to make sure that they avoided that. And I think one of the things that I found is that the leadership on my team, they wouldn't have joined Quibi if they couldn't have the true like power to do exactly what they aim to do, which is make a small team who was mighty and as powerful as a large team. So I totally think that it has to be something that is really bought into across the board, especially with leadership. So what you're saying is you're really good at your job because you ended up there. No, 
I mean, <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> g- 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 got his ass. <laughs> That's the type of gotcha journalism we do here on Bad Impressions. <laughs> no, but I just think, Zach, what you said at the very beginning of this that really kind of struck me was that you have to be egoless. And I think that to me is so much of a quality in management that isn't necessarily, and I hate to make it so black and white of like agency versus in-house team. But when you think about these agencies that are just getting more and more like just, okay, here, do the Google skill shop courses and learn how to do these things. And it's lacking the management and career development that I think really is what can form some of these good teams that you're talking about. And so, you know, I think the mindset of, oh my gosh, like I have to put ads up as, oh, knocking on what you're spending your time doing. Like, I liked that you were saying, oh no, that's like what you have to do. And I think that's something that that mindset really has to change in order for the meeting room to have less chairs and, you know, this party to not walk in with every single person in their manager and their manager's manager, manager's manager's manager, because everybody needs to realize that doing that part of the work shouldn't be looked down upon. I mean, for heaven's sakes, it's dealing with money in a live auction environment. Why is that left to the people who have only been doing it for one or two years? So that to me really struck a chord. Yeah. And like, I think there's a fallacy in that, in the egoless mentality in that it, it takes a lot to get there. And I'm not tooting my own horn in saying that, but there's a, a composition of a person that I think builds up to that. And like, for me, I've been, I've been freelancing for a while. So like I've been hands on keyboard, uploading ads and understand that for small companies that the impact that has is pretty recognizable and important. So I, I feel pretty proud about that sort of an action. And the other part, which I think says a lot, is a lot of people I think join Comp still have the idea of like, well, there needs to be a career track for me. And like, maybe after a year, I'll get a promotion, especially in the agency world. It's like very much rank and file. Whereas at Quibi, I, um, I never even remotely thought about a promotion. There really wasn't anywhere for me to go unless Quibi happened to like blow up and we're going to hire like a 30 person team because it'd be so big. But that was like a long shot thought for me. And really it was Quibi paid very well for the people that they hired. And they did so exactly to create the environment we're discussing, which is I didn't care about a promotion. I didn't care about my bonus, frankly. I didn't care about any of that. All I cared about was like, is everything that our team is responsible for that's going out into the world the best that it can be? And how can I be a part of that? So it it fosters a a sort of professional curiosity that I think otherwise is kind of eaten by the the hunger of like, I want this promotion. I want this raise. I want this whatever. And it's like, I just didn't care about any of that. It's like, I will work here all day, all night until we do what we have to do. And everybody on the team felt that way. So it, it creates like a really interesting kind of group aspect. Yeah. One, I think I have aged more rapidly than I thought I have because I thought you all were talking about eagles this whole time and I was like why are we talking about birds of prey but you were saying <laughs> egoless so that was very humbling you um, need an environment where your rabbits can run freely and no raptors will swoop in and, and make yeah. meat of them yeah just free varmints and and rodents just running rampant <laughs> around uh, the prairie without any you know massive uh, aerial attacks we had to mark this podcast explicit because we knew david would say varmint 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> Welcome to Kentucky. But I think also like there's, there's a big, big strong point about my personal opinion is like the, the longer you are outside of the platform, the more irrelevant you actually are. You might feel like you're, you know, like you've done so much. I, I know so much, but like you're, you're about one or two meetings outside, like at a certain point from you're about to get like just shown up in a meeting by someone much more junior because you're going to say something and they're going to say, well, actually, and come back and like, just make you feel like, like, well, I should have stayed home today. And I think that's like a real, like, thing that needs like I would encourage with everyone in terms of this industry is like you've been in platform maybe you don't want to do it every day but like stay in platform like as long as you can because it's just going to help your team you're going to be able to help answer like things that that are going to come up you have plethora of experience I'm sure if you if you know anyone like Lee myself Zach or uh, Ryan on this in just terms of like stay in platform as long as you can and don't get blown by by you know like a 23 year old that just is is gunning for your job well and I think I mean Zach I know you were joking earlier about being a a meetings and email type of guy, but that's something that I always, I feel like back when we worked together back in the day of you were never like, Oh, no problem. I'll get in the platform and upload that YouTube ad. Cause that's what we got to do in order to get to the happy hour, you know, like first priorities there. But I also think as a big freelance person, like how that has affected your view on, you know, getting in the platform. And I think it is so important. And yeah, I don't want any 23 year old showing me up. I was that 23-year-old. There's a great story. I'll just give everyone behind the scenes in terms of an interaction that, that Lee and I had with our full team. And we were going back and forth on something. And he pointed out some point and I provided the counterpoint and there was a big pause. And then Lee stroked his beard and just said, all right, technically you're correct. And then I quickly responded with, which is the best kind of correct. And that's the world in terms of like, you know, I got them, but no one wants that, you know? And of course we're like, we're all joking and we were all like giving each other a hard time about it. But that very much could have been like a hostile situation in a work environment, not a, a small group, you know, of, of peers trying to find the best solution for a client or a way of working. I totally agree. I think that it like, that's something that I encountered a lot is because we were all from different worlds and angles of different past experiences. We often had similar like ideological approaches to things, but differing opinions on how to get there. And I think being able to argue and disagree and change your opinion quickly based on information and data is so important and something even outside of marketing is like a huge problem in the country right now is people are unwilling to change their opinions freely because it makes them feel weak it makes them feel whatever but especially in business to me it's like it's a great way to keep yourself relevant is to be able to discuss things and disagree openly and possibly change your own opinion about something so i think Hearing you talk about your experiences at, at Quibi and just like the structure around you, like so in depth, probably for the first time, actually, I would say from the outside, like it seemed like like there was a lot of stuff that has that aligned perfectly for a very successful operation and you know, for, from a marketing perspective. But we all know like the, the fate of Quibi at this point in time, like from your experience, what was like one of the biggest like barriers, obstacles, or the most difficult element to, to drive success from maybe a marketing standpoint? And you can very well say from a marketing standpoint, we were very successful, but yeah, just what was that? Or what was that barrier? I'm going to tread kind of lightly here, but 
in general, there was there is a, a big difference between the brand marketing that happened at Quibi and the growth marketing. And from a growth marketing perspective, we were of the mindset of let's put ourselves out of work. Let's not be able to drive any growth through a meaningful cost perspective, which means that Quibi's growing organically because of its content and its product. So we were very mindful of that goal. So you're going going back to the incrementality approach that you're having. Like you want to make your incremental growth absolutely as small as possible. I would say the amount incremental after a period of time was much higher than we anticipated, which was a red flag. But I think that what we built from a growth and user acquisition perspective was best in class. We did so much that I think all of the partners we worked with would agree was either above board or equal to all the big dogs out there. And really what it comes down to, and this is where I'll kind of leave it, is Quibi was built on the idea that the content and the product would be what drives the business and what really keeps people coming. And that just didn't happen. There are a myriad of reasons as to why either what did happen wasn't seen as a success because there were a pretty decent amount of like users and people who came back and all that. So there were signs of life, but at the end of the day, it wasn't what Quibi set out to do. It's a harsh binary result. It worked or it didn't, you know, kind of thing. But I think there's there's so much that goes into the in-between or the before and after that could still very much be, it is a success, but the end result was still an unfortunate reality. What's some advice that you would give someone going into a, a startup mentality like, like Quibi in terms of do this, don't do that, or if you had one lesson to impart on them, what would that be? For me, I think, and this only goes so far because there's some truth to it, but on the other hand, it's really hard to put into place. And it's to be like actually honest with yourself and with leadership. I will tell you the first time I saw the Quibi show, I was like, oh God, this sucks. This is horrible. I really, truly tried to like it and to get into it. And I was like, listen, I like one or two shows. I tried multiple others. And very quickly was like, I wouldn't pay money for this. And I'm speaking now as just like a person, not even an employee, but I think my own hubris got in the way of being openly negative about that, where I said, well, just because I don't like this doesn't mean the rest of the country won't. And the economics of it would work out that even though I don't, and there might be millions of people who agree with me, the people who do like Quibi and will use Quibi, there are probably millions of those people too. That still could be true. I don't think that it is, but I think that was Quibi's hubris at large is that everybody thought exactly what I'm saying, which is we're putting out the best product that the industry has seen and that's that and everybody will want it. And I just think being super honest with the creators of those sorts of ideas are, is so important into not getting into something that ends sooner than later. Yeah, I, I definitely think there's that old adage that definitely like rings true or maybe from a comms planning kind of perspective, don't assume you're the target audience, but there's an element of still like truth to that. And there's been a lot of times I've been proven wrong. You know, I've, I've ran campaigns for a major QSR restaurant and the image was just a, a cinemagraph that just looped, no sound, no nothing. And I was like, this is going to absolutely tank. And from the metrics that we were measuring it in terms of like store visits based off of YouTube, it did very well. And I was like, okay, 
I need to just like understand that there's a lot of stuff that I have strong opinions on. I've made my career on kind of being a, have you thought about it like this kind of guy? And sometimes it works out for me and other times it is, you know, backfired. It's funny you say that because I, I would say some of our biggest wins from like an experimentation side of things came from ideas like that, which is like, prove me wrong type of deals. And we were all of the mindset of that. And like, honestly, I think the ethos of our team is predicated on that sort of a thought, which is don't prove anything right or wrong, just prove a fact and move from there. And I think in, in the case of understanding Quibi, at least personally, I just should have been more skeptical that maybe my gut instinct was a little more correct than I wanted it to be because I was operating under the very statistically driven mindset of like, just because I don't like it doesn't mean millions others won't, which kind of gives a false negative. Maybe there's some hope out there when really like, if you had a gun to my head, I'd be like, nah. Is this any sort of clock striking 1145 on the infinity growth, don't worry what happens after sort of party? Or is the question of should we continue this heavy growth marketing focus with less long-term value and profitability date focus, is that even the right question? And is that a fake question? Is that people in digital marketing assuming they have more power over that than they do? I'll confess that the reason I feel like I sometimes yearn for the clock to strike midnight on the pure growth, no eye on profit marketing is I have this hubristic belief that in digital marketing, you really can drive growth for more profit. At times I'm struck in, in hearing you mention that Quibi, the idea was no, like we just need to grow it and grow the brand and the product speaks for itself. Is it just that? Is it silly hubris to think there's even a version of digital marketing that even can be focused on anything besides growth? Is there even really a version that truly contributes to brand equity and retention as much as we claim it can? Or is it just that products either fucking kick ass and are real and new or they don't? <laughs> like, am I asking this false question of, is the pure growth party over because I, I believe too much in, in the ability of people in our trade to actually do quote good growth. Is there really only just growth and the product makes it good or not? After my experience at Quibi, I'm of the mindset that growth marketing is basically a kickstart. And if it does anything beyond that, your car isn't running. So it's like a growth marketing will get you users in the door and then your product better be good enough to keep them there or they're just never going to come back and you're going to have a bucket with holes in the bottom of it. So I really believe that there is some impact that can be driven from it. But if a company is completely propped up by user acquisition, then to me, there's almost no hope. And that was always the intention is that Let's stand up Quibi in whatever markets and then use the growth team to expand elsewhere and to expand product features based on data. And like, that's where I think the, the blurring of lines between performance marketing growth and product growth happens is that like the real, I think, impactful changes to a company's trajectory is the growth marketing that happens on the product side, because we can hack and do all this creative testing and stuff, but if there's not uh, like a positive signal from a specific 
product feature, then it's like, well, what's the, what are you doing? What's, what are you changing to make it better, to make users stay longer, to make them interact more, whatever the, the case might be. But yeah, it's, it's a really interesting thought. And I mean, it goes back to the same thing. It's like, I'm the type of person who hates ads personally. I have YouTube premium. I block as many ads as I can and all that. So uh, when I think about how many, and I'm sure you guys have all thought about this too, is like, think about serving billions of impressions and getting millions of clicks and thousands of conversions. I'm like, who are these people who are doing that? And it, that's what gets me to the fallacy of like, oh, well, maybe other people will like this. It's a, a gigantic game of I put numbers into a screen and numbers come back to me and they look good. Or they just are numbers. Yeah. You know, and like, you're just like, all right, I did the thing. I was working on Oreo. We had hit like a trillion impressions or something within like, a, like the calendar year or something. I was like, just stupid. Maybe it was just a billion impressions, but like just something like, like literally like just for one brand, we put out like, like a billion impressions for, for a campaign. And I just remember thinking like, that is an absolute shit ton of impressions for a cookie brand. And I think like, that's, what's like really strange about like CPG, you know, just in terms of like, it's, it's all branding at this point in time. It's like, you know, you put out as many impressions as you possibly can to hope that when someone who doesn't just instinctually buy Oreos, like that's part of their, like their normal process is like when they're standing in the grocery store aisle or they're in the convenience store or, you know, the bodega at the corner and they're just like, Hmm, what do I want? The amount of times that we've put out an ad for Oreos just goes, Oh yeah, I'll have an Oreo among all the other competition in terms of all the other snacks, not even just in the cookie space, but just in terms of anything else you can eat. Like that's the world that, that they live in. And the beautiful thing or the scary thing or the worst thing is there is no way to judge that or like measure that because there is no attribution to purchases like that the end consumer can have. We're just throwing out billion impressions and then hoping at the end of the like year when we run our MMM numbers look good. And there's a lot to that um, pack and kind of tying into like the conversation of KPIs from, from, from the previous conversation. But yeah, there's just like this whole world of just like putting a bunch of messaging out there for a brand and you get the numbers back and you're like, cool, I guess maybe. Yeah. And like a small note on that is like, that's, that's honestly how a lot of how we thought about our performance is that even though like these campaigns that are meant to drive action, like really shouldn't be looked at from an impression standpoint, we had a pretty strong belief that those ads still have a meaningful brand impact because of exactly what you said. It's like, if you serve billions of impressions, that's a hell of a lot of impressions. People are seeing your brand. And if you activate that creatively the right way, it's going to be meaningful and drive action. So yeah, I, I completely agree. We haven't even touched on like our favorite conversation to talk to you about is your time at Tumblr. But <laughs> now that you've, you've done that, you've spent some time at, at some, some different agencies and, and now you've had your experience with, with Quibi. What has been across your career, like the, the most interesting part about digital marketing or just very simply putting ads online, what would you like to do next? You know, positioning or navigating your career. So the most interesting part for me, honestly, outside of the craziness of Quibi, because there is a lot of things that were just like so fascinating about it. Like my first day on the job, I had breakfast with Jeffrey Katzenberg, which is like hilarious. I mean, I was nervous to meet my team members, let alone like get a call on a Sunday from my boss that I didn't really know who was like, so meet us at this diner at 8am tomorrow. 
So like there's stuff like that that was really interesting to kind of really see the inner workings of Hollywood. But I think freelancing has been most interesting to me because it shows me like it, with a credit card and some ads, be it uh, YouTube or display ads, like you can change the course of a business. You can help someone sell out their inventory in a week through Google ads if it's a good product. So it, it kind of lit a fire for me to be like, what's my product? If I don't come up with something, I hope I find the person who has that something that I can jump on early enough to be like, I can help you grow this to something that will be something that sells itself. So I've seen like the true impact of digital media, I think to Lee's point and to what we're kind of getting at is ads definitely work. It's just a matter of more or less mitigating your waste and managing any sort of weird stuff that happens in between. Whereas like, I think a perfect example is with incrementality. I didn't even realize I was doing it, but I'd have clients all the time say like, why am I paying for my own brand? And why, if they're already going to find me, I don't need to pay money for it. And it's like, great, let's shut it off for a week or two and see how many conversions you get. And if it drops, it means that the amount of the conversions that you were getting from branded search is that percent, that number incremental. And if not, then like, yeah, let's shut off non or let's shut off brand and really lean into other channels. That small example, I think is scalable in a lot of ways. It, to me, it's like, it's that the media experience that I've gained over the past few years is far more transferable to larger business cases than I ever thought. Every once in a while, I kind of get hard on myself and I'm like, damn, I'm going to be 40 and be like, shit, no one buys YouTube ads anymore. I'm out of a job. No one like does pay search anymore. I'm out of a job. When really what we do that's meaningful is we can analyze data and a business's performance and say, here's a thing that we can try that might do something different. And that idea, that like ability to piece data together and recognize an opportunity is what growth marketing and marketing in general should be about, which is finding the blank space and trying to fill it. It doesn't have to be through a self-serve platform. It doesn't have to be through a DSP or a vendor. It can be like, let's go change. Let's send a text to everybody. That's like, Hey, here's a new thing. That's on a very localized basis or very like small cohort of people. All that sort of thinking is not isolated to digital media. I think it's just honed and sharpened so perfectly in digital media. That's the most interesting part about my experience so far. And then what I'd like to do next is probably equal or plus up of what I did at Quibi, which is move kind of away from media buying specifically and more into analysis of business performance and really understanding like areas for opportunity and some of the opportunities I've looked at are, you know, like established tech brands being like our performance in this DMA or this market isn't as good as it is elsewhere. Why? And how do we change that? And I think that's a good example of maybe that's not a, a problem solved through digital media. Maybe that's done through some other avenue. But I think this like mode of thinking is incredibly valuable to all sorts of different companies. And to me, it's worth exploring a little bit beyond the digital. Zach, thanks for all this. It's been a fantastic episode. I know you're a master of first impressions because in a legendary job interview, rather than walk five blocks to the office, from the webcam at the desk at Tumblr HQ, one of the all-time baller, all-time baller job interview venues, 
I think when I asked if he was worried about anyone seeing him interviewing for a job at his job, he said that they would probably ask him to get them a job too because of the state of Tumblr at that time. So that's a hard first impression to top. But Zach, uh, if you want to give a last impression, a bad impression to um, all of our listeners here, what's either something you think sucks about digital marketing and could get a lot better and or something you just think is just interminably hilarious that that constantly happens in our industry that either you hope never does stop because it's so funny or wish would stop post haste. (laughs) That is an amazing question. And honestly, I completely forgot about the me interviewing from Tumblr. You were only topped by the legendary Dea Fonseca suit interview. Which of course, that's impossible competition to beat. You, you can't beat you can't beat Jonas and his suit and the backstory behind that. It's a really good point. Um, I will happily take second place against that. I really think what I hate the most about digital marketing right now is hustle culture and grind culture. I see it, and like this is a unsolicited plug of myself. Is like I spend way too much time on TikTok, and it I fucking hate all the people who are like this is how Gary Vaynerchuk built his empire and it's like all these stupid tips and all these like tricks that people think are out there and like that that's like a really small brick in the entire building of hustle culture which is so stupid it's like go do your job if you need to work long hours you need to decide for yourself whether or not that's for you or not and either do it or quit and get another job, but don't like scream from a rooftop about how hard you work and how grinding is part of your culture because it's really not. It's just how dedicated are you job and doing a good job for whoever you're employed by. I think one of the things about like hustler culture that I maybe like it like resonates in the back of my mind is the the John Wooden quote in terms of like never mistake activity for achievement. And that's essentially what hustle culture is trying to promote is like the optics of doing something, which isn't necessarily the optics of do like of achieving something or like accomplishing a goal, like being busy and completing a task. There's two different things. And I think that's like where the distinction is, is never drawn in terms of just like the, the general like hustle culture itself in terms, you know, like I, I'm much more aligned to the grind culture, like get the job done instead of like, like being like super busy for the optics of being like looking super busy, like you're super important. And I think that like so, inflates your self growth or, or your, your self worth um, and those kind of things, which is just not genuine. So you do rise and grind, but you do not tussle and hustle. Yeah, and I stay off of bustle as well. Oh, is that, that's that content website for, who is that website for? I don't know. Zach, thank you for that. Appreciate that. I appreciate it, guys. Thank you for having me. I hope I don't get sued by Quibi. We hope you don't get sued by Quibi either. Although, honestly, it sounds like Elliot Capital is who we all need to be watching out for. <laughs> like... I, Wait, I, Lee, I, are you sure that's not where your dad works? No, I mean, I don't know. Thank you for listening to another episode of Bad Impressions. If you have any comments or questions or have a suggestion for a guest or would like to be a guest, you can reach us at sadmen, that's S-A-D-M-I-N, like a sad admin, at badimpressions.online. Alternatively, you can comment 
on any medium for listening to podcasts where comments are available. We will read them and we will get back to you. Anyway, that's all for now. I hope we left a bad impression.